In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to our latest episode of Money Tales. This is Sandy, and I'm here with my colleague, Cami. Today, we talk with New York Times bestselling author, leadership expert, and nationally acclaimed speaker, Tommy Spaulding. Tommy is an inspiring, heart-led leader, and we're so appreciative that Tommy brought his heart to our money conversation today. Hi there, this is Cami. Tommy discusses the idea of having a money mentor, how he and his wife approach money in their family, and the importance of spending his time and money helping youth become impactful leaders. Stick around for the financial insight we have for you at the end of the interview. This insight picks up in the conversation with Tommy about some ideas for how to approach financial parenting. Now, let's get to the conversation with Tommy. Tommy Spaulding, welcome to Money Tales. We are so glad that you're here with us. To give our listeners some appreciation for your life, we would love to hear a brief summary of your journey so far, and we're hoping that you can share with us one or two or maybe even three really pivotal moments in your life that help change the direction and make you who you are today. Hello, Sandy and Cami and all your amazing followers. I'm Tom Spaulding. I'm in Denver, Colorado. I'm born and raised in upstate New York, in Suffern, New York, right in Rockin County. And my mother was a school teacher. My dad was a school teacher. My sister became a school teacher. And all my aunts and uncles were school teachers. And I didn't want to become a school teacher because I really actually struggled academically in high school because I'm severely dyslexic. And so I watched my friends graduate high school, Maga Kamade and Summa Kamade. And I graduated high school, thank God Almighty Kamade. <laughs> <laughs> school with a 2.0 GPA. And back then they didn't know how to diagnose, you know, dyslexia and, and learning disabilities and ADHD and you know all that. And so my guidance counselor told me I should go to trade school called uh, BOCES, which is a school in upstate New York for electrician, carpentry and plumbing. And there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter or a plumber or electrician. It just wasn't my passion. But I listened to him, and that's where I was probably headed when I graduated back in 1987. And then you asked me if there was a life-changing experience that, that's ever happened in my life, and this is it. This international leadership musical group called Up With People came to my high school my senior year, did this international musical show, and I'd never been on an airplane before. I, mean, I never left really New York. We went to Disney World once, Chicago once, Cape Cod once, but I thought you needed a passport to go to New Jersey. I, mean, I didn't know the world. And here's this group of 150 young people, every color skin, every religion, every background, every political belief, every sexual orientation, just the, the world. And all young people singing you know, rock and roll music about building authentic relationships and changing the world and volunteering and giving back and after the show was over, this really cute girl from Sweden 
gets on the phone, the microphone and says, hey, if you're the ages of 18 and 25, want to take a year off your life and travel over the world with other people, please come to the front of the stage and talk to me. Well, I didn't want to travel the world with other people. I just wanted to meet the hot girl from Sweden. I'm 17. And so I went up to the front of the stage and started talking to her and asking her, what kind of GPA? How do you get up with people? And she said words, uh, Sandy and Cammie, I've never heard before. She said, you look for people that have servants' hearts that want to give your life to others and to change the world. So I followed her backstage. I interviewed with a couple of adults. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter in the mail that I was accepted to join up with people. And so instead of going to BOCES and becoming the best damn plumber in the world, I joined the world group called Up With People and spent nine years traveling to 83 countries and staying in over 1,000 host families. And 25 years later, I became the CEO and president of Up With People. And the organization absolutely changed my heart and how I look at life and how I look at serving others and been all over the world because of that organization. It's a lot of who I am today. As you're growing up, your mom, your dad, school teachers, what's home life like? Are you, since this is Money Tales, are you talking about money? Is, is money like part of a conversation or aspiration around money? Yeah, it's interesting. My mom wasn't working when I was young. She didn't go to college until we, I graduated high school. She went back to school, got a diploma, then eventually became a school teacher. But money was, was really never really talked about. And I never knew how much my dad made as a teacher. Obviously, it was a teacher's salary, and you know, we never had a new car or any of those kind of things. But you know, we grew up that middle class family. But when I was 14, 15 years old, my parents pulled me aside and said, Okay, it's McDonald's, CVS, Domino's Pizza, you're going to do one of them. And I worked all through back then, you can work at 14. And I worked 20, 30 hours a week all through, you know, 14 till I went to college. And paid a lot of those things. So if I want to close or I want to go on something, a trip with the boys or do something, buy a guitar, buy an album, it was my money. And my parents really didn't spoil me, not because they didn't love me. They loved me. They just didn't have a lot of money. And I don't have any memory ever of handing my, going to my to get a haircut or, hey, I'd like to buy this Billy Joel new album and my dad pulling his wallet out. I, I've never had a memory of him giving me money. It was like, shovel driveways, mow lawns. And so a lot of who I am today and that tenacious spirit of making money probably came from my parents not have, really having much of it. And Tommy, tell us more about that because I think this is very interesting. Many of us had to work when we were younger and there are a lot of really great lessons. So if you're in charge of taking care of yourself financially for all the things that your parents aren't otherwise supporting in terms of presumably food and shelter, um, what sorts of things did you learn about money from that? Because I think those are really rich learning up opportunities and it'd be great to hear about that. You know, I had this conversation once with my parents because we don't really talk about money. And I said this comment and they didn't really appreciate the comment, but I really believe it. I actually think it's harder. I have three children now with my wife. To raise children with, I, when I say money, when you're financially successful, it's harder to raise kids being financially successful than raising kids without being financially successful. Because when I was a kid, we had no money. So there wasn't any options of, you know, why don't we stay at the Ritz-Carlton and not stay at the Days Inn? You know, like we could never even afford the Ritz-Carlton. I don't even think they knew that word. We always stayed at the Days Inn. That was our, that was the hotel. And we loved the Days Inn. There was like HBO and I got to sleep on a cot and then bar of soap. And my kids don't know what the Days Inn is. They stay at the Ritz-Carlton, the Fort. 
it's a different life they live. And I think it's harder to raise kids today to be hardworking and to be humble and appreciate what they have than back then. You appreciated everything you had because we had really nothing. But my parents did a great job instilling work ethic. And I think that's the one thing I think that money can and can't do is it can really instill work ethic in us. And when I was in college, they said, well, here's what we can afford. Here's your tuition cost. You're going to have to make 10, 20 grand a year at college. So I bartended, I worked in a car wash, I bust tables, I had all kinds of jobs. And when I graduated college, I wasn't afraid of hard work because I've been working my whole life, right? So were you participating in Up With People while you were in college? I did Up With People right out of high school for a year as a student. Okay. A year-long student program I did at 17 when I graduated high school. Then I went to college in North Carolina. When I graduated college, I went back to Up With People and I worked. And I was with them for many, many years uh, as a staff member on the road. You start, you know, I'm a staff member on the road and then that I worked my way into the office in the corporate headquarters in Denver, Colorado. And then you worked your way up to the CEO role. Tell us about traveling the world at a young age with that program. And then being a staff of that program, presumably you got to see a lot more of the world and how different people live. Yeah. One of the most amazing experiences of it up with people is when you're a student, you never stay at a hotel. You stayed in the host families. So I think that student year, we stayed in 120 cities that year. So I stayed in 120 different host families in 10 different countries and maybe 20 different states all over America. And literally, we were in California and I stayed with Kevin Costner's next door neighbor in La Cunada, California. And I think it was a 12 to $15 million house. And the next week we were in Belgium and I literally was sleeping basically on a dirt floor because the family had no car, picked me up. We walked to their house and they gave me the food that they were supposed to eat. And I ate their dinner basically as their guest. And so to live all over the world and I've been to Ethiopia and I've been to Haiti and I've been to Thailand, some of the poorest parts of the world. And I've been to Singapore and Luxembourg and Japan, the wealthiest parts of the world. And people are people and they have great hearts and they all serve and love. And it was a really great experience for, to teach me about money, seeing what people have and what they don't have. And when I went to Ethiopia, what I was fascinated with, there was all these kids playing soccer. There was no sock uniforms. No one had cleats. They're all barefoot. There's no soccer nets. There's oil cans, whatever the goals and dirt fields and the soccer ball is half deflated. And these kids were having fun and they're laughing and smiling. Ethiopians have the most beautiful white teeth. And you come to America and all these kids are got all the soccer uniform all decked out and not even grass field. It's all amazing turf fields with goals and nets and they're all on Ritalin and Paxil and all that because they're all depressed and, and they're not really happy. And it just taught me that some the most poorest nations of the world are actually the happiest. And that's, it was really good for me to see that. Yeah, seeing that disparity of wealth, how did you bring that back into your life? And how does it play out today? My parents were good parents. And my wife's parents were really good parents, but we didn't want to be good parents. We wanted to become great parents, the kind of parents where, you know, other parents call you up and say, what the hell are you doing with your how you raise your kids because your daughter was over our house and she's the most polite. She did the dishes, helped out. She's volunteering. I mean, we want model kids. And one of the things that we decided to do is that, you know, volunteerism is going to be a big part of our kids' lives. And last summer we 
went down to Mexico and built homes for the poor with Homes for Hope, kind of like Habitat for Humanity, but even better. And Homes for Hope is this amazing organization. My wife and I and my kids were building a home alongside with a Mexican family from Tijuana. They were living in a tent and he made $21 a year driving a cab, taxi. And they were literally living in a tent. We went to their tent and we built them a home alongside them. And it was the most incredible experience. And I just think doing those types of experiences this past Christmas, I mean, this comes from my kids. We, honey baked hams are a big tradition. We get a big honey baked ham and make biscuits and rolls and having a great meal. My son, who's 20, stepson, eat and make this great meal. We had a lot of food left. And after Christmas breakfast, my daughter says, hey, we got 35 rolls left. We can make 35 sandwiches. So all of a sudden we had a factory of sandwiches and I had some extra chips for, and sodas. And we made 35 basically lunch bags and we got in the car, my whole family. We drove around for two hours on Christmas Day on going to every bridge where there's homeless people in Denver. And we walked out there and shook their hand and wished them a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and gave them you know, a, br- a breakfast or lunch. And that came from my kids. I mean, that, that, that's the stuff, where the hard work that we have to do as parents to really teach our kids how to be grateful for what we have. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Tommy, help us understand the transition from days in with your family growing up to Ritz-Carlton with your family that you have today. I always thought I'd be staying at the days in because I never knew I would make a lot of money because my heart always was with up with people in my nonprofit. You know, I made $250 a month working for up with people for many, 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 many years. And then I went to the corporate office and you make 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, you don't make a lot of money. And I think when I was CEO, which is like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I think I got paid, you know, $300,000 for the CEO, but that was the most money anyone in my entire family ever made. But before I was CEO of Up With People, I was never making money and running nonprofits. And, and the day's end was wonderful. And then I got into the speaking. I wrote some books that became number one bestsellers. And that's when it really changed my life financially. It also changed my life, you know, just the impact in the world. But you write a couple of bestsellers, you're charging, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand a speech. And before you know it, you're making a lot of money and you're staying in nicer hotels. But I still think of my time staying at Days Inn as a kid, sleeping in a cot with my family and watching HBO because we never had that in the house and have great memories of who I am, who I was when I was a kid. I, I love this, this like moment where you've gone from, you know, just kind of a, a, a basic income to a really financially successful. How does this, how do you start having conversations or do you have conversations with your wife or with your kids? Because it's, it's different now. So what's the conversation like? First of all, a few things that I've learned about money is that my parents never talked about money. So I, I really knew nothing about money from them or investing or giving or those things. So I surrounded myself with incredible mentors that had wealth that were humble, genuine people. Because one of the things, when you're CEO of a nonprofit organization, you learn a lot about money because you raise money. When you're a CEO of a nonprofit, you might think you're running the company. That's bullshit. I didn't run the company. The chief operating officer ran that. My job was to raise you know, tens of millions of dollars every year fundraising. So you travel around the world meeting with very wealthy people and getting seven-figure gifts, you know, million-dollar gifts. and You meet a lot of people. And I found that there's two types of people that give money. 
I knew which what type of person I wanted to become. The first type of person that gives money, whether they give $10 or they give $10 million, is they give with strings attached. I'm going to give this $10 or I'm going to give this $10 million, but I want this. I want you to accept my niece into your program. I want my name on that building. They want something. It's an exchange. And then the second type of giver that gives you $10 or $10 million is the person that gives you $10 million or $10 and winks at you and says, don't tell anyone I gave you this between you and me. And I don't need my name anywhere. And uh, I love those people. And unfortunately, in my experience with, before I became an author, I was in nonprofit for 25 years running nonprofits and raising money. And so I would say 90% of the people have strings attached to their give. In my experience, maybe it's 80%. That's pretty high. And my mentor, Jerry Middle, who I wrote about in my first book, who I'll talk a lot about in this webinar, is because he taught me more about money than my own dad. He said to me, every time you give money or volunteer your time, you never tell anybody. And as soon as you tell one person, then you're really doing it for yourself. That really had a huge impact in my life. So all of my wife's and I knows we never tell anybody, never want credit, never want recognition. It's always silent. And um, I wouldn't have done that and learned that. It wasn't for Jerry Middle, my mentor. So at that time when you became a best-selling author and your life started to change financially, tell us how that impacted your identity and how it impacted your relationships with the family you grew up with who, well, you mentioned before that you've made more, you were making more money at that point in time than anyone else in your family. That's a real big deal for people. That's a big transition. We'd like to hear more about that, Tommy. It changes. One of the things I learned about money is that people think money changes you. And I actually, I don't agree with that. If you were a jerk before you had money and then you made money, you're just a rich jerk. If you were an ass before you had money and you got money, you're just a rich ass. If you were genuinely humble and really an authentic person, you're just an authentic, genuine, rich guy. I mean, money only amplifies the person you were before you had money. We grew up humble and I was always raised humble and I always lived my life to be humble. And now I think I'm just a wealthy, humble guy. And And that takes work because you surround yourself with country clubs and famous things and it can change some of your tastes. But my wife was a school teacher. She grew up in a home that her parents bought for 20 grand when they, when they sold it 30, 40 years later for 120 grand. I mean, she came from nothing as well and or middle-class as they say, and we're just humble people. My wife tells me when she cuts coupons or when she comes back from the grocery store, proud that she saved $27. And we talk about that with the kids. Just because you have money doesn't mean you can't cut coupons and look for two-for-one specials and so forth. And so we just kind of never really changed. And so we might look like we have money because we live in a beautiful home. We have nice cars and go on great vacations and have all these things. But we're like middle-class people that never really changed, my wife and I. And we're pretty proud of that. It sounds like you and Jill have a very open relationship and that you talk a lot about things. And it would just be interesting to know whether the level of conversation specifically around money and having money in your marriage and then in your family life, how that might have ebbed and flowed as different life events have occurred for the family. Yeah. Had some great mentors, Sandy, that really 
coached me about how to handle money in a marriage. Jill and I actually have a very traditional marriage where I work and she's home. She's the CEO of the home. Although I do all the laundry in our house. I want you to know that. I'm the laundry guy. But she really runs the school and the kids and activities and the health and checkups and the doctors. And she runs the whole house. So we have an amazing family because of it. And I kind of am the breadwinner. But I literally call myself the president of my company, but Jill is the president of our home, you know, Spalding family. She's the CEO of that. And she should get a salary for that. So all my mentors said every, every month, you should just automatically deposit money in a separate account, just in Jill's name, not a joint account. That's her money. So that, you know, mommy doesn't have to come to daddy and ask for money when she wants to get a manicure or go to spa. That's her stuff. And it belittles that relationship. And so I wanted my wife and I to be equals. And even when, you know, the kids say, you know, daddy, thank you for taking us great vacation. Like yesterday, I bought my, finally caved in. My daughter was the last human being, the ninth grader on this planet without a phone. We, we tried our, the, the way this longest. And last night I caved in, I got her a phone. <laughs> Everyone has a phone and today's the first day of school. And, you know, she suckered me and she goes, I have to be able to text you and call you when I'm, there's an emergency and the, now these schools require phones that barcodes to get into the school. And so I got her a phone. She was the only eighth grader that graduated without a phone because we, we were kind of old school. But I gave it to her and she was just thankful and she knew exactly how much it cost. And we're just transparent on things. And, and when she said to me, thank you, dad, I forget it to me. Well, go thank mommy because it's her money too. And I always say that. Go thank mommy because it's her money too. My kids have just grown up knowing it's not my money because I make it. It's my wife's and I, it's our money. It's our family's money. And when you have money, you distribute it into either the savings account, distribute it to the children, or you distribute it to, to charity. You know, it's distribution of, of our wealth. And they just, we have a very healthy conversation about it. And when I die, they know how much money they're going to get. They're not going to get all our money because I don't want them to be spoiled brats. You know, I've seen a lot of people get all this money when they retire. And so they're all going to get a set amount and the rest are going to go to charity and they're going to work for a living. And they all know that. And um, my parents, I haven't even talked about their will. Like when my parents die, they're divorced and I have no idea where, what's going what and who's going to get what. And that's unhealthy. I mean, I got two really, really nice watches. My son's getting this one. My other son's getting that one. And every, I mean, my brother gets the diamond ring. I mean, everyone knows what everyone's getting. It's just healthy. And I never had that growing up because it was kind of taboo talking about money or when you die, who gets what. But my mother had a very close family. And I wrote about my grandparents in my last book, The Heart Led Leader. They were Italian and they were hairdressers in upstate New York. And they had four daughters and really close family. They didn't have a will. And when they died, they didn't have much money, but they had, they had things like, you know, my grandparents' bed set. that was then theirs for the whole marriage. Well, both two sisters wanted the bed set. And one person wanted the wedding ring. One person, anyway, my mother's siblings, half of them only talk to each other today because of how the will was handled. They were fought over all this shit. They fought over furniture and rings and grandpa's suit or whatever. And I watched that. I said, that's the most dysfunctional thing, losing relationships over, fighting over things. My grandparents had the guts to write it all down and say, who gets what? They would preserve so many relationships. And so- That's really a great story, Tommy, because that's a lot of the kind of 
premise behind this podcast is that not just writing it down for after you die, but that if the conversations are be happening, whether it's, you know, who gets the watch, but also just a healthy relationship with money. It doesn't mean you're getting all of it. It doesn't mean we aren't here to decide what's right for every family. Each family has their own. But I think that's a really important point you raise. And so I'm curious, you've kind of alluded, you've talked about your some of your possessions with your kids. Do you feel they have a good sense of what their responsibilities are, what money is, how they make it? Do you think they have a good sense? They do. And we look back at how we're doing as, a, as parents. You know, I was working 20, 30 hours a week, sometimes 40 hours a week in the summer when I was 14, 15, 16. By the way, I didn't just work at McDonald's or Domino's. I worked at McDonald's and I, mean, I had two or three jobs in high school and college and so forth. And my kids haven't had part-time jobs yet. I mean, they're only 12 and 15. Anthony is now in college, but they have different responsibilities now. Like my son plays competitive hockey where he travels out of the country six times a year and travels to you know East Coast the other 10 times a year. And it's just... Life was different when we were kids. We had part-time jobs. It's a little harder for kids because they have so many demands on their schedule with schooling and so forth. They have chores around the house. And we did give them allowance or a dollar for every age they were for, for a while when they were growing up. And we did the whole save, spend, give. And that was the best advice I got is the three cups. And the way we did it is they got a dollar every year that they were. So if they were you know, 10 years old, they got $10 a week if they were eight years old, they got $8 a week and they had chores to do around the house, but they didn't get that money because of chores. And that's what was taught. You don't want to give allowance. If you do these chores around your house, then I'll give you money. That's not the message that we taught our kids. You don't get any money if you're doing chores. Chores are what's being part of this family. So you make your bed, you make your lunch, you, you know, clean your room, help with laundry. You, you help around the house because you're part of this family. When you got allowance, that's just distribution of what dad makes. Everyone gets a piece. And then when you get that money, then you can have your three buckets and they had to save, spend, and give. That was really teaching them how to do that equally. But that was really hard to manage long-term. And, and I'd like to say we did that perfectly for 10 years, which we didn't. But we got the concept down. And my kids, I mean, I'm just going to say this, I don't have spoiled kids. Everyone that eats, all three of my kids say, you probably have the most least spoiled kids that have come from privilege that we've ever met. And a lot of that's my wife. She's just a different human being. She's as authentic and genuine and humble and down to earth and total giver. And you just share a household with Jill Spaulding, you're going to be a different person. And she's just that remarkable. So Tommy, will you tell us how you and Jill make decisions about giving? Because it sounds like that's a really big, important part of your lives in a way that you like to share your financial success. And we hear you loud and clear. You mentioned the desire to keep things anonymous, but just at the big picture level, how do you guys make decisions about how much you're going to give and who you're going to give to? Yeah. Well, there's two ways of giving. There's giving over time and giving a and most of my marriage to Jill, I didn't, we didn't have a lot of money because I was running a nonprofit or working for a nonprofit. It wasn't until recently when I started my new speaking business and writing books that that changed. And even when you're an entrepreneur, like for example, last year, I did incredibly well. 
But this year, I'm not doing many speeches in front of 10,000 people this year because of the coronavirus. And so my business has changed. And so you have to change your lifestyle. And so that's what's just, you just have to have total transparency on that. As far as giving, you know, a lot of people like to give a little bit of money to everything, you know, $1,000 here, $10,000 here, $100 here, whatever your numbers are, but just to help everything. And when I was CEO of Up of People, I was honored to meet the CEO of Coca-Cola. I was, went to Atlanta to ask for him for some money, support. Coca-Cola used to be a real big partner with Up of People, and I wanted to go back and renew that partnership. And I met him, and he basically said no. But he said, here's why. He said, you know what, how much water is in Coke? And I forget the numbers, like 99%. I mean, Coca-Cola is basically water, and, and, or Pepsi is water and corn syrup, right? And, you know, we rely so much on water for our product, and there's water all over the world that's unclean, and we want to make a dent in it. Coca-Cola used to give, you know, $5,000 to, you know, tens of thousands of organizations, and they decide not to do that. They're going to give hundred percent, like ninety-nine percent of their money, to organizations around the world that are helping to clean water. I think it was an organization called Water for People, and all these worldwide organizations that are cleaning water because that's what's most important in their eyes, and they really want to make a dent in that. And that really that taught me a huge lesson. And I think a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, a lot of family foundations, they have a lot of individuals instead of trying to give a little bit of money to everything so you can kind of put your, hot, your pot in everything, figure out what's really important to you. And for Jill and I, we love youth. You know, we have our youth leadership program, the National Leadership Academy and all the youth programs and raising scholarship dollars to pour into young people to learn about leadership. And that's kind of my passion. And so, yeah, you can donate all the money in the world, but where Jill and I, we do is we started a nonprofit and we run programs to help high school. I can tell you all about it if you want, but not just about writing a check. Writing a check's the easy part. It's really about volunteering your time and getting others to write checks and others to volunteer your time and become community to create change. And we've had over 11,000 kids go through our National Leadership Academy, high school kids, over 21 years, learning about you know, servant leadership. And that's what I'm most proud about. My program, the National Leadership Academy, is really focused more on teaching kids about volunteerism and being a servant leader and giving back to the community and being a leader in the community, you know, living a life where it's not just about you, it's about others. Is that the inspiration for the heartfelt leader? Yeah. I mean, the psychology of how my career kind of went from working with high school kids to now coaching Fortune 500 CEOs is basically when I was working with high school kids, I really learned to teach a high school kid to truly live a life an unselfish life, to really live a life of giving to others and serving others, having friends that look and believe and pray different than you and living a life where it's not about you. That those are the four most important words of leadership. I write in all my books, all my blogs, every speech I give to high school kids. I must have given, I don't know, a hundred high school and college graduations in my career. And every graduation, I talk about four words of leadership. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about others. You have to live a life of serving others. But most of us live a life of serving ourselves. But if you choose to live a life of serving others, you're going to have an incredible life. And so we try to teach these things to kids. But I realized when I was working with these high school kids over 20 years, high school kids really can't understand the concept of serving others and putting others before yourself 
until one thing has to happen. The high school kid has to learn how to love themselves and believe in who they are. Because if you don't really love yourself, you're not comfortable in your skin, you want all the attention, the recognition, you're insecure, so you don't know how to give your life to others. And so our programs are really how to believe in yourself, how to love yourself, how to truly have confidence in who you are. You've had such a full life so far with so many different experiences. What's most important to you and what haven't you done yet? Well, what's most important for me, for Jill and I, is that we want to raise a family that when they get older and they get married and they have children, that they choose to spend time with us and that they want to spend time with us and they want to go on vacation with us. And if we have a home in Florida or a home in Mexico, wherever we have homes and that they want to go down there, here's what I've learned. There's two types of families that get together. One is, I call, I'm Catholic, so I can say this. It's called an obligatory visit where you have to go visit your mother. You have to go visit your father. You have to go visit your in-law. You have to go do it because you are good and you do it for, out of respect for your parents. And you, you might spend a holiday together or maybe a short weekend together. I don't want obligatory visits for my kids. I want my kids to say, you know, oh, mom and dad got a place, you know, in Hawaii for the week for Christmas. Let's all go. And, and they all want to go because they love each other. And their spouses want to go because they feel loved. And very, very few families can pull this off. I got a great family. I'd love to talk about it. I'm sure they wouldn't mind, but the Wilson family in Memphis, Tennessee, Ken, Ken Wilson. I love his Christmas card because it's got like, like 100 people on the front cover. He's got a huge family. But Ken runs a huge foundation in Memphis. His family built Memphis. His father was the founder of Holiday Inn. And now Ken runs that foundation. And he's probably in his 70s. He's got kids that are my age. And I've been to Memphis, I don't know, eight times. I've never stayed at a hotel. They never put me in the Holiday Inn. I stay at their house. And every time I'm at their house, all their kids come over for dinner. And we stay up to like two o'clock in the freaking morning talking and laughing and drinking wine. And I mean, whatever Ken Wilson and Norma, his wife, do, I want that. I want my kids to want to come over the house, hang out with us, and not having this, you know, obligatory visit that most families have. And you ask me a question, Sandy, what's what I want? That's what I want more than anything in my life is I want to grow old hanging out with my kids and doing life with my kids. If money were no object, what would you most like to do? I would love to give more away. You spend your whole life trying to build relationships and have a great influence. I've built a life where I have incredible relationships with people all over the world and a huge influence with millions of people that read my books and my blogs and, and follow me and do my leadership programs. And so I have this influence. But if you gave me $500 million, I can take all those relationships around the world and all those influence and really do some huge damage to change the world. I've realized it takes relationships, it takes influence, it takes wealth to really create change. And I'm still two for three. I don't put myself in that category where I can write checks, where I can build communities. But you know, you go down to Mexico and you build homes. I mean, you could build a whole community. You go to Ethiopia, I've been a few times and you know, $100,000 will build you a hospital. $500,000 will build you a hospital, a junior high, and a middle school, and you build a whole community. And you rebuild the world by building these communities. And I would love to do that. 
Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and your experiences and your heart with us. As a final question for you, Cammie and I are curious, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? You know, it's interesting. I'm afraid to have this conversation, but my father and my parents got divorced and my dad and my stepmom, who's wonderful, live in the house that my great-grandfather built up in upstate New York in Saratoga Springs. So my great-grandfather built the house. My grandfather lived in it. My father lived. So I'll be the fourth generation. And my dad and my stepmom live in the house. And it's their home. They fixed it up. They remodeled it. And, you know, my dad is probably 15 years older than my stepmom. And, you know, eventually my dad's probably going to die and pass away. And my stepmom's going to have it. And rightfully, that's her home to live in because that's, she married my dad and she's wonderful. But when she passes, man, I would love to have that house back in my family lineage because my great-grandfather built it. It's upstate New York and it's got a lot of sentimental value. I grew up as a kid in that house and that home should be a Spalding. I'm the last Spalding on the whole food chain. And my son is the Spalding after me and I want to pass it down to him. And we've never had that conversation and I'm afraid to have the conversation because I'll offend her and I'll offend him. And, and it's just sad that we can't talk about it and have that, but I'm trying to gain the, the confidence to ask her, Hey, when my dad passed away and if you ever sell the house, would you let me buy it? Would you, if you pass away, would you pass that on to my dad's kids and your kids? How does that work? I'd love to have that conversation. We hope that you do. It sounds like a really important one. Yeah. Thanks. Andy. By just identifying it, you will. I know you, Tommy, and you'll do it from your heart, which is great. Thank you so much, Tommy. It's been absolutely a pleasure getting to know you through this conversation and digging into some areas that maybe isn't something you're talking much about, but it's, we think it's so important. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. Hi, this is Cammie with Money Tales. During our conversation, Tommy touched on several aspects of financial parenting. This is an important topic for many parents, regardless of the size of their net worth. We can't recall anyone telling us they want their kids or stepkids to grow up to be spoiled brats. So what are parents to do? Here are three ideas Sandy and I would like to share to get started. One, identify your family's values and apply them to your family's money decision-making process. Two, talk about money with your kids all the time. And three, if you can afford it, give your kids some real money to practice with. Let's look at each of these in a little more detail. First, and articulate your family's core values. Your core values are the things that are most important to you as a family. These could be honesty, transparency, education, faith, or a number of other attributes your family holds most dear. If your children are old enough, be sure to encourage them to participate in identifying the family's values and be sure to revisit them from time to time to make sure they remain current. Then be sure to apply the core values to your family's money decision-making process. And what do we mean by this? If your core values include generosity, kindness, and wellness, be sure to use money in ways that express those values. Children's learn through invaluable lessons from the money behaviors you model for them. Our second idea is talk about money with your kids a lot. In these conversations, you have the opportunity to determine how many of your financial details you'd like to disclose or not. Regardless of what you share, you'll be doing your children a huge service by explaining why you made a purchase or why you didn't make a purchase, why you decide to give money away to a friend or to a charity, why and how you decide to save money now or, or so that you want to spend it later. And be sure to explicitly point out how your money decisions reflect your family's values. 
If you don't talk to your children about money, they'll be forced to draw their own conclusions about why you did or did not do something, and their assumptions could be misguided. Finally, if you can afford it, give your children cold hard cash to practice with. There's no silver bullet for determining how much or how often to give it, so find the balance that works best for your family. Consider the age of your kids and who they currently are. Also, set clear guidelines in advance so the children know what to expect and what's expected of them. Is the money meant for them to spend, save, give away, or all three? And as the children grow up, be sure to adjust the allowance amount and expectations in a manner that allows them to build money competencies, like budgeting, saving, and investing over time. Keep in mind that this is money that you're going to give them to practice with. They might physically lose some of the money you give them, make bad spending decisions, or lend it to a friend that doesn't pay them back. And if they do, be glad they're learning from these common money mistakes when the stakes are low and they have a long runway to apply the learnings over the rest of their lives. Financial parenting can be tricky. The key is to be thoughtful and intentional about the money lessons you want to teach your kids. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.